All right, well, let's start with a word of prayer, and we will get going. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you um, asking for your wisdom and for your Spirit's guidance as we uh, look at this topic, as we think about what it means to uh, defend the faith and what it means to preach even to ourselves, Lord. We ask for uh, help today, and we uh, ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. All right. Let me steer this just a little bit so I don't bump my teeth on it. Okay. Well, welcome uh, to Sunday School class. Uh, today and for the next few weeks, we are going to be discussing apologetics. Apologetics has typically been uh, thought of as as an intellectual idea, uh, intellectual uh, way of looking at how we uh, defend the faith and things like that. It's kind of thought of also as, um, as something that is a luxury for people, um, that it's something when, you know, if you really have nothing else to do, you might pick up a book on apologetics. Maybe it's just for seminary students or people that are really into that stuff. Um, but what I want to show you is that apologetics is uh, something that has been commanded in Scripture. And it's not just for the atheist at your local university. Um, it is for us. And so we want to look at how that is the case. Uh, before we do that, though, there are certain things, and you'll look at your little handout here, there are certain things uh, that we need to know about uh, how we think. Because um, if you don't know how you think, then it's going to be a little tricky uh, as to know what all, uh, all this apologetic stuff even means. Uh, because apologetics has a lot to do with how you think, because it comes down to what you doubt, what other people doubt, which usually comes down to the way you're thinking. Um, what are some, uh, if I can just get a feel of some of the things that you have encountered, what are some, uh, some things that you have heard other people say that they have had a hard time with with Christianity? Like if you've had any interaction with unsaved people or Christians that are doubting or anything like that, what are some doubts that you have heard? Okay, yeah, that's a big one. Um, how is it possible for God to be loving and then all the suffering to occur in the world? We call that in the apologetics world the problem of evil. Uh, and we are going to cover that. Isn't that great? You will have your answer. <laughs> it is something. It's a hard question. I mean, it may not be so black and white, but, uh, but it'll, it'll be, uh, we're covering that. That's good. Yes. Yes. Okay. 
Right. And that's, uh, yeah, so Bob brought out the good point. Authority. People hate authority. People hate telling them. Uh, people hate it when someone tells them what they're supposed to believe, what they're supposed to do, especially with their own bodies or their own minds. Because we all have, and this is something even Christians struggle with, we all have this desire to be the final answer. The it seems to me syndrome uh, it becomes very, very strong in our hearts, right? And our experiences and how we interpret those experiences become more of an authority in our lives than something that might seem outdated like scripture. Um, anybody else? Anyone that might be like, I don't know, in high school? Oh, there's some. You guys are in high school. Uh, do high school kids have uh, doubts? Or are they so distant from Christianity, they don't even, they don't doubt anything, they don't think about it. <laughs> I mean, that's been my experience in, high, in Christian high schools. Uh, what, what do you guys think? That's fine. I'll take anything. Okay, so they were, they're concerned about Christian hypocrisy, that if God told you not to do it, why do you keep doing it? That kind of stuff, yeah. That, uh, that idea of, and maybe even the, something we were talking about in Triple B, if God has saved you, then why doesn't he just take that uh, sinful nature right out of you and you just walk around as a perfect human being? Um, it's a great question. We're actually going to address those things. Dinosaurs. Okay, yes. Answers in Genesis. Yeah, so if there's any, if you have any questions about uh, those kind of things, <laughs> Ken Ham has all the answers. <laughs> He's fine. He's fine. Okay, yeah, we'll, uh, we might talk a little bit about that because uh, the way uh, one of the sessions we're going to have is about how science uh, clashes sometimes with Christianity. And what we'll find is that science itself doesn't clash, it's scientists, right? Because there's no such thing as science. It's scientists, humans. There's nothing out there that is this abstract thing called science that humans then access. Does that make sense? Humans do things uh, called science. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> I can see on your face you're like, I don't understand. Okay, we'll get to that. All right. So uh, it's good to get that cursory understanding because um, I want you to understand that doubt is not something that is reserved for really bad people. Uh, and if you start doubting, uh, then you must start questioning your salvation and all sorts of things. Uh, doubt is something that is common within all of us. Um, 
And it's something that needs to be fought. And what we don't do is learn how to fight it. Uh, one of the doubts I used to have, um, I think it's something that, that will always rear its head. Uh, when I was in my philosophy, working on my philosophy degree, um, one, of the, one of the big doubts that would haunt me is doesn't it make more sense that when you die, nothing happens? That's it. It's fade to black, and that's it. And that thought haunted me. It just made more sense that we're just a bunch of biological stuff walking around that got lucky, and then you die, and you're unlucky. And that's it. It's over. Yeah, there's nothing there. Um, and all those, all those arguments, right, that people came up with, the cosmological argument and the ontological argument and all these really great medieval arguments uh, that come along, uh, didn't really help me. Um, Ken Ham didn't help me, as good of a guy as he is. Uh, and what I found was uh, what I hope we come out with at the end of this study is that doubt is not cured by really good arguments. Um, doubt is cured through the actual work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. It is not cool or exciting or uh, a great revelation um, after years of studying apologetics uh, in seminary, uh, I have come to that conclusion. In the end, when it's all said and done, the power to relieve doubt and bring you back to, a, to reality is a work of the Holy Spirit. Which means um, there are techniques that Scripture gives us to help us. And that's what we want to get to. Now, uh, to start out, I want you to look at your little handout, your very handy handout, uh, so expertly put together. Uh, so hopefully, even the words are spelled right. Um, we want to look at that first question, how do I interpret the world? Because this is the key. Uh, a lot of people skip those first two questions that we have there and go right to apologetics. Uh, they start out uh, talking about apologetics already confused because they have skipped two things. And it's no wonder there's so much confusion about apologetics. Uh, apologetics is a uh, convoluted uh, world because everyone's already under the delusion that they already understand it when they pick up a book on apologetics. And because of that false confidence, they begin reading, thinking, oh yeah, I got this. And, what, and they kind of start making assumptions and beliefs uh, before they've even started understanding how it is that they put a thought together. That's a problem. So we're going to start thinking about how we think. How do you interpret the world around you? Did you know that thinking is an act of interpretation? What's going on is quite amazing. There's these uh, little things coming from these lights, 
and outside called photons, little particles. They're bouncing off stuff, and they're entering into the holes in the front of your head called eyes. And uh, those photons uh, assemble inside your brain. It's a fascinating, you, you really got to look this up. It's fascinating stuff. You can Google it. Uh, how it is that you come to see things. It's fascinating. From photons bouncing off stuff, you start interpreting the shapes that you're looking at. Did you know that right now you're listening to me because uh, I'm able to push air through vocal cords vibrating. Air is compressed, and that compression of air goes through uh, this space into holes in the sides of your head. And that compressed air going in the sides of the, your head, uh, you're starting to interpret uh, what I'm saying. It's fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Holes in your head are helping you understand what's going on right now. <laughs> I mean, your pupils really are just, you know, holes. Stuff goes in. All right, so what am I getting at here? I'm getting at the fact that data does not come from the outside and slap your brain. Data comes from the outside world and you have to interpret it so that it makes sense in your brain. And that is the one thing that no scientist can handle. Stephen Hawking, remember him? That was the one part of uh, a particular book he wrote called The Grand Design where he's trying to teach Christians that it looks designed, but it just looks that way because you're a human and you kind of assemble it in your brain. But the one thing he had a hard time with is the fact that no scientist can determine why it is that the human brain is able to interpret, which is the very thing that makes you think. Now, they know what part of your brain lights up when you interpret, but they don't know how the brain is able to interpret external data into internal meaning. It's fascinating. They don't know why. It just happens, and then they move on. Well, that's pretty important to us, because how is it that we are able to interpret? That's what I want to talk to you a little bit about before we get into the next question. So the first question, when receiving outside data, we adapt that data into internal meaning using criteria. Or you can put a standard if you want, if criteria is an ugly word to you, standard, criteria, either one. Make sure you write something in though. Makes me feel good because then I know, oh, I made this for a reason. <laughs> All right. Is he writing stuff down? Okay, good. All right. Just making sure. Because if, if I don't see you writing stuff down, I'm going to call on you. All right. Okay. So your first blank there, criteria. In order for you to interpret the world, you have to compare what you're seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting, whatever sense you're using, you have to compare it to something. And what you compare it to uh, is an authority. This criteria is an authority. Our brains work by way of authority. We have a standard by which we can compare things so we know what things are. It's just how God made our brain to be. Now, it's not just how God made our brain to be because God is a covenant-keeping God who made covenant beings, and covenants always work in um, authority structures. 
So it makes sense that God would make our brain in a covenant way. That's another story, another lesson. We'll go there someday if you wish. I can tell you want to. All right. Zeke wants to. Okay, so this authority helps us interpret. So the authority interprets. The authority is the thing we use uh, be, to become the thing that interprets the world around us. And the authority is that which confirms everything else. You do not use uh, anything to confirm your authority because your authority is that which confirms. This is what I mean. This is something I use in a lot of my presentations uh, for my job, so I'll use it here. It works with them, it'll work with you. So, if I were to bring my uh, thumb out here, how many inches do you think my thumb is? Three. Three! You are the first person to say that. Everyone, and I've been all around the nation, says two. Thank you for that. I don't know why, but it just seems like it's three for me, too. Anyone else? Two? Okay, that's fine. What did I hear? Two and a half. Look at that. Taking the, taking the median rail. So what would we need for me to know how many inches my thumb is? A ruler. A ruler. So let's say I had a ruler on me. I measured it two and a third. <laughs> it comes out. Now, Kyle is a cynical man. And he says... Where'd you get that ruler? And I said, well, you know, I just brought it with me. He says, no, 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 that, that must, must be something weird about that ruler. So Kyle brings in his own ruler. And he says, you're going to use this ruler. And then it turns out that ruler that Kyle brought in, same measurement. But what has become our authority? Kyle's ruler, right? The first ruler is no longer the authority because the, the first ruler is now being tested by Kyle's ruler. Okay. So now Kyle's ruler is the authority that we're going by. It's confirming the other one. But Zeke also is very cynical. We live in a cynical, cynical world, don't we? And, and so, so he brings out his own ruler. Zeke says, you use my ruler. So then we say, okay, let's use Zeke's ruler to make sure. Sure enough, Zeke's ruler says two and a third as well. But now what's our authority? Is it Kyle's anymore? No, because we're, we're I know you want it to be, but it's not. Um, it's no longer Kyle's ruler because Kyle's ruler is now being tested to be confirmed. What are we left with? Zeke's ruler. Does that make sense? We can do this for eternity, at least for as many rulers as there are on the earth. Okay? <laughs> so my point is this. Eventually, you stop with one authority that is not tested but is the thing that tests everything else. Does that make sense? This is how the court of law works. This is how everything works. Because it's how God structured us to work. So the question is, what are you using as that thing that tells you what's true or false about the world? That's the ultimate question for us during this entire study for the next few weeks. Because what you will find is what you put down for a quiz will be much different than what you actually believe. If I were to put down, if I had a quiz and I had, you know, what's your ultimate authority? And I had, no, A, the Bible. 
B, your personal experiences. C, what you think is rational. You would all pick the Bible because it's Sunday school class. And if you knew if you didn't pick the Bible, we'd immediately take you off the, the membership rolls. <laughs> That's right. Do I hear an amen out there? Nobody. Okay. Uh, so, you know on a quiz you're supposed to put the Bible because it's Sunday school. But, in reality, doubt comes because we often don't believe that. We don't believe Scripture is relevant enough, uh, um, thorough enough, sufficient enough, and that our own brain, our own way of thinking, the data that we have, the reasoning that we use, is reliable, ought to be the ultimate authority. We call this autonomy. It is a delusion whether you're a Christian or not. That's something we'll cover later. Uh, we think that's a Christian way of talking, but if you knew anything about logic, which we will talk about, we will discover that human autonomy is silliness. To the most unsaved atheist in the universe, it's silliness to believe that. There's a reason why we came across this idea called postmodernism, where everyone said, who knows? There is no truth. Just do your best. Enjoy whatever is happening. Um, that was a very logical place to go if you don't believe in God. It is very logical. You can look at postmodernism and call it illogical that people would say, there is no objectivity. Whatever goes, goes. And you think, oh, that's crazy. No, it, that makes quite a lot of sense if you don't believe in God. We'll cover that later. Okay. So the ultimate authority is that which confirms everything else. So then I want you to think closely about when you hear someone says, say something to the extent of, we found this trinket in the desert and it confirms what scripture has said. When you hear people say, it confirms what scripture has said, or this confirms scripture that you found some trinket in the desert that says Jericho was where the Bible says Jericho was. Oh, now we can believe it. Yay! <laughs> it's insanity. Uh, but we do that. We try to confirm the Bible with things that do not have the power to confirm anything. Um, it is at the core of liberal view, the liberal view of, this, of Scripture as well. So this idea of authority has to be uh, on our minds so that we understand what it means uh, for us to think and interpret the world around us. So what is a worldview? A worldview. Have you ever heard of that term, worldview? In Christian uh, textbooks, it's a multi-million dollar business, my friend. Uh, you don't even have to know what worldview means. If you slap that on the front of a cover, Christians love it. Like, oh, worldview, oh, biblical worldview, ooh, this is going to be great, I'm going to use this, right? You don't even have to know what it means. It's like, uh, back in the day, uh, we used to see all natural was put on all kinds of different products, all natural. Do you know what the standard, the FDA standard for putting all natural on your product was? Nothing. <laughs> you could get a Kit Kat bar and put all natural on it and it'd be perfectly legal, even to this day. Uh, all natural on meat, however, 
uh, means there has to be some kind of process to keep it somewhat natural. You can't add some kind of hormone to the animal or something. Other than that, still free reign. And that's kind of where worldview has gone. Uh, it's, a, it's a business now. Let's go ahead and find out what it means. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be way ahead of a lot of other people. It'll be great. Are you excited? Worldview. Okay, here it comes. A worldview. This is where most people are going to say a worldview is. A worldview is a set of basic beliefs, assumptions, and values. Values. That's where your next blank is. Values. A set of basic beliefs, assumptions, and values. And you use those, those basic beliefs, assumptions, and values to help you interpret the world around you. Those basic beliefs, assumptions, and values came from your authority, right? Uh, so, uh, when, when someone tells you something scientific or something artsy, like, uh, oh, isn't this a beautiful piece of music? And you're like, okay. Right? I'm, I'm not good with that kind of thing. I don't know what good music is. Uh, other people do because they understand that stuff. But I don't, so I just kind of have to agree, because I have no authority when it comes to that. Uh, well, I have some, but not a lot. But then when people like say something scientific, then you might have a little more authority. You might go, well, I have more knowledge about that. Then someone tells you something theological, and as we know, if you're a Christian, you automatically have all the knowledge of theology there. And so you, already, you know, hey, I know what that's about. Got my authority on that. Okay, so these beliefs, assumptions, and values. Now, where do those come from? We talked about our authority. This is what uh, I think will help us most. That these beliefs, assumptions, and values are from a big, what do you think that next word is? Well, we got those already. We got to know where those assumptions come from. A big story. I want you to put the word story there. It arises from a big story about the world. No, it's, just, it's a story. and I want, I want to try to defend that a little bit. It's a narrative, if I can put it that way. Part of the way we work as human beings is that you don't live amidst a bunch of propositions. Your life doesn't, you don't comprehend your life through a series of propositions. You understand your life through a series of events. And those events create a story. It has to be coherent, it has to be a coherent story, otherwise you won't understand your world. Does that make sense? In fact, even science demands a story, right? For science to be comprehensible, there has to be a story. Is everyone understanding what I'm saying? So uh, when I was reading uh, Stephen Hawking's book on the grand design, his big theory, the theory of everything, is what he calls M-theory. M-theory is the quantum mechanical view of the universe that tells us how everything came to be, and we can predict how it will become. 
But when you hear him tell about this, it's a story, right? Because your story will tell you about why you're here, who you are, and what, uh, what your purpose is. So what if your story is that you exist because of an um, impersonal um, explosion, uh, according to Stephen Hawking, that happened on the quantum level. Then there was what you call uh, inflation, which blew everything up really fast, which is why the universe is uh, all moving apart from each other at such a fast speed. So your story is that after that happened, there was a rock that was just far enough from a star and spun just fast enough that when it cooled down, there was life able to be on it because of the condensation of water and all that sort of thing. And on the back of a comet, there might have been some proteins that when it collided with the Earth, those proteins got into the, the mist and mixed with the water, which then allowed for life to happen and all these accidents, and they're not even accidents, they're just, it just happened. It just did. Um, it's not purposeful, it's just activity. Does that make sense? So you are here because of activity. Whether random or not, doesn't matter. It happened, you're here. When you die, it doesn't matter. Does that make sense? You teach enough kids this, and they learn that life on Earth doesn't matter. In fact, the absence of humans would probably be better for the Earth. Right? In fact, if you really think about it, the st every star does what? It's supernovas, doesn't it? Scientifically, that's what happens. So eventually, what will happen to this Earth? It's close enough to the sun that when the sun supernovas, it will consume the earth as it gets big, and then when it turns into a dwarf again, uh, well, I don't know what will be left of the rock, but no life will be there, I guarantee you that. Uh, there's no living inside of a sun, from what I understand. <laughs> so then you have to understand, okay, well, the earth isn't eternal, um, so your existence, as fast as it is, doesn't matter. That's your story. So now, from that story, you now know the trajectory of your life. You know whether it matters or not, which is the negative. You know that whatever you do on this earth is temporary. And even if you're the worst person in the universe, once the sun supernovas, there's no one to remember it. This is your story. You move from that story forward. From that story, you get whether you're, what kind of beliefs, assumptions, and values you're going to have. Of course, there's another story, right? <laughs> Thank goodness, right? And from that story, right, it produces individual and group action that causes human culture. Uh, the last word is culture. You can fill that in if you like. Um, culture. So what happens to a culture that has accepted the first story? The story about everything just occurring, nothing really matters. Well, you would have all kinds of different assumptions and values. 
you would start valuing whatever people decided about themselves because there's nothing objective to tell us whether we are male or female. You would get to decide that kind of stuff if you want. Does that make sense? You, uh, you would value whatever society decided to value because there's no objective thing out there. Everything else is just events. In the event that the culture decides something uh, is good or bad, that is what tells us what's good or bad. So a worldview. As uh, reformed people, we have a very strong worldview, not just of how God created the world and how God created uh, us, but a very strong view of how man fell. This worldview is going to change what kind of apologetic we decide to use. If you believe man just kind of fell, um, that man uh, fell uh, in sin, but he was kind of delirious in sin. He's not like dead in sin. He's just kind of delirious in sin. So there's like some remnants for you to kind of tap into because he's sinful, but not all the way depraved. Well, that's going to change the way you approach someone, right? If someone's not fully depraved, they're just sinful. You know, they do bad things, but deep down inside, they're good people. <laughs> that's going to change how you approach it. If you think people have completely fallen into sin, and there's no good in them, and their mind is completely darkened by sin, well, that's going to change the way you approach someone. It's going to change the way you view apologetics. So the big problem we have found is that people all are already looking at apologetics long before they even understand their worldview, which means their apologetic conflicts with their worldview all the time, and they don't know why they can't figure things out. If someone is trying to teach you apologetics and they haven't even taught you what worldview is and that your beliefs, values, and assumptions all stem from the worldview that you have and you haven't studied your worldview, then you, don't, you should not look at apologetics yet. You don't even know what you believe to know what it is you're dealing with. If you don't have a good grasp, especially as reformed believers, as who you are, what happened to you in the fall? Are you a rational animal or are you a covenant being? Does reason, is reason the core thing that makes you who you are? Is covenant the key thing that makes you who you are? Do you understand what the image of God is? And what has been retained from the fall? What is restored in your salvation? How you deal with people who have not been saved? How you deal with yourself who has been redeemed? If you don't understand those things, then you are not ready to know anything about apologetics because you don't know anything about yourself. Because worldview and apologetics are two different things. Worldview tells you who God has told you you are and what conditions exist concerning who you are. 
Apologetics, on the other hand, if you look on your handout there, what is apologetics? Before we get into it, uh, what do you think? If worldview tells us who your authority tells you you are and what you believe, then what's apologetics? Mikhail, you look like you want to say something. Okay, system, that's interesting. Excellent. Let's turn to answer that question. So Bob's question was, apologetics sounds like you're, at, you're saying apology, like you're apologizing for something. And that seems strange. Is God telling us to apologize for our faith? Yeah. So what does this mean? So let's turn to 1 Peter 3.15. 1 Peter 3, verse 15. And I will tell you, 1 Peter's hard to find. It's a little tricky. It's in the back. It's after Hebrews. James is a little bit there. And then Peter. Has he found it yet? All right. I helped him out as much as I could. Daniel, have you found it? Excellent. All right, just making sure. Kyle, you look like you found it already. Look at you. Look at that. He came in, he came in the room already having 1 Peter ready to go because he knew. He knew this is the apologetics verse. This is what everyone turns to, and it's for good reason, actually. There's nothing ironic about it. Okay, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. All right. With gentleness and reverence. So let's look at that first part. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. This is worldview. He's telling you what your authority is supposed to be so you know what your beliefs, values, and uh, assumptions are supposed to be. If you're to have Christ as Lord of your heart, what do we automatically think about as far as story goes? Who created the world, according to John, chapter 1, and Colossians, chapter 1? Christ, right? Christ created the world. Man fell. Christ redeems. This is the story Christians are able to live by. Right? For the unsaved, Christ created. 
man fell, Christ judges. Right? They have a different story. But that's the story we live by, and through that story, all of our beliefs, assumptions, and values come from that story, which is recorded where? In Scripture, which means where do all our beliefs, values, and judgments come from? Scripture, which contains the story by which we live. So that's what's being spoken about here. We have uh, worldview first. Then it says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. Now we have the real understanding of apology. Um, before apology became groveling, it used to mean giving an account for why things happened the way they happened. Okay, so things happen the way they happen because, let me give you an account. So, uh, if you can put it this way, if you're late to work, uh, if Miguel comes to, uh, goes to Green, uh, Spartanburg, was it? Spartanburg, uh, Hospital, yeah. Is it like memorial? Is it memorial? There's no memorial for, for Spartanburg. Okay, that's Greenville. Greenville wants to memorialize. Spartanburg does not. Okay, so you go to the, uh, you go to the hospital and you're late. They say, Miguel, before we fire you, just tell us why you're late. And Miguel gives an apology, right? This apology isn't necessarily groveling, but he needs to give an account. So the account is, on the way here, uh, there was a 10-car pileup. Miguel, of course, exited his car to help, uh, saved six lives, uh, and then still was only 10 minutes late. So not, not bad. Not bad. And they said, wow, that's a, that's a really good apology. That's a really good accounting for your time. So I guess uh, we're still firing you, but, uh, but we, feel, we feel a little guilty about it. Okay, so, um, now this, uh, this idea uh, comes from the ancient view of apology where you're giving an account for a belief. Uh, Socrates uh, did this. Uh, Plato recorded Socrates giving an apology, not being sorry for what he believed, but giving an account for what he believed. He was on trial. Anyone ever learned about this? You, you kids over at the uh, Greenville Classical Academy, I'm sure, talked about Socrates at some point because otherwise it couldn't be a classical academy, could it? Uh, so uh, he had to give, remember, he had to give that speech to the authorities because he was under trial for, for contaminating the youth with, uh, with bad beliefs. They, were, they, were, they weren't believing so much in the gods. They were believing in reason, and they thought, that's bad. So they said, you're going on trial. Uh, he gave an apology, and... Plato even called it an apology. And it, he wasn't sorry. He wasn't saying, oh, I'm so sorry, please don't kill me. And instead he was saying, this is why I believe what I believe. And so then they did kill him. So that didn't work out so well. Uh, they did give him a way of escape. They kind of knew he, you know, a lot of people escaped that and they didn't really want to kill him. Uh, but he wouldn't leave, he wouldn't escape because according to Plato, he was just so noble. All right. So what we find here is giving an accounting for what it is you believe. 
Now, there's way, different ways to do that. So what we find in apologetics is that apologetics, now Mikhail said a system, which is, which is a, good, a good word. Um, I'm going to say a method. It's easier for us lay people. Uh, a method for defending the faith. It's a method for defending the faith against God's enemies, which is what we typically view apologetics uh, being about. You're not going to meet a whole lot of people like that. You might. Um, and it's good to have a good method for when you meet people that are, um, that, um, are unsaved, maybe even hate God. Um, well, they do hate God, whether they even acknowledge that or not. And so there are uh, methods to approach them. You need to know what is going on in the human mind. You need to know what the fall means. You need to know all these things to know what direction you need to go with them. So there needs to be a method to do this. But this method also needs to be something that helps uh, other Christians out who might be doubting. This method is also designed to help you out and your own doubt. That's a, the, last, uh, the last one there, your own doubt. This method um, doesn't do any good uh, if you are trying to help unsaved people know God, but you are filled with doubt. It doesn't help the church for you to go out and to uh, use this method against all the atheists at the local university when people in your own congregation are suffering from doubt. And what you'll find is the main, uh, the main audience for apologetics, the main audience, the primary audience for apologetics are Christians. A secondary audience would be unsaved people who, have a, who want to challenge uh, Christianity and you need to have an answer for them. Okay, does that make sense? And let me defend that. Um, with verse 16. And keep a good conscience. Who's he speaking to? Speaking to you. You keep a good conscience. Well, what does that mean? You need to preach to yourself. Before you start preaching to others, you need to be convinced so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. How are they put to shame? Are they put to shame by your really awesome argument? No, they're put to shame by your behavior, by your confidence, by your lack of doubt. They are put to shame. We can't confuse verse 16 with verse 15's uh, admonishing you to have an account. The account is something you are required to have for those that challenge. But the more deeper uh, understanding is in verse 16 that you need to keep a good conscience because the testimony that's really going on here is you, not your argument. Arguments don't save people. Uh, scripture, through the work of the Holy Spirit, is a salvific work. In other words, let me make sure I, oh my. In other words, uh, the power 
is in Scripture. So, um, next week we will start talking about different forms of, of apologetics. And we will start talking about uh, how it is we start forming our own. So let's have a word of prayer and we will get going. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this time we have together. We pray for clarity, pray for understanding, and your work uh, to be done as we go through this study. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.